Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. I need something on her. Something I can use to get her to shut up. Because if she doesn't stop what she's doing, I'm going to send her back to where she came from. What does that even mean? Back where she came from? You mean Jacksonville? No, I mean back where she came from. In the months leading up to January 23, 1974, Alan Stanford was looking for dirt. This is Sheriff Garrett. I want to run a background check on Athalia Lindsley. Alan, that you? I want to see if she's got any skeletons in her closet. Can you help me out? Stanford had been locked in a months-long feud with his neighbor, Athalia Poncel Lindsley. He called people around town, seeing if they had anything he could use to shut Athalia up. Well, when that didn't work, he turned to threats. What do you want, Alan? Listen, you. You're a vicious, evil woman, and one day, I'm going to fix you. These were not the ravings of a madman. There was a time when Alan Griffin Stanford Jr. was considered a respected member of the community in St. Augustine, Florida, where he lived with his family. But his threats frightened Athalia enough that she confided in her sister, Geraldine. Athalia, what's wrong? That man over there. That's Alan Stanford. I think he's going to kill me. Soon after this ominous prophecy, Athalia was found hacked to death on her front porch. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our second episode on Athalia Poncel Lindsley, the St. Augustine socialite who was tragically murdered in January of 1974. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave us a five-star review online. On January 23, 1974, Athalia Poncel Lindsley was murdered on her front porch at 124 Marine Street in St. Augustine, Florida. Last week, we discussed Athalia's life and the circumstances which might have led to her untimely death. This week, we'll look into the investigation, the arrest, the trial of the man suspected of murdering her, and why this gruesome case remains unsolved. There was a single witness to Athalia's murder, her next-door neighbor, Locke McCormick, who would later describe a white man in his 40s or 50s hacking at Mrs. Lindsley with a machete. Police arrived on the scene to discover a gruesome sight. Blood everywhere, a mutilated body, and a saga of neighborhood enmity that all but drew a circle around the likely culprit. And yet, over 40 years later, no one has been convicted of Athalia's murder. There are two main things to consider as we go over the facts of how Athalia's murder was investigated. The first is that in 1974, the use of DNA in criminal forensics was barely an afterthought. 
Blood samples, even ones that might link a potential murderer to a victim, were far from reliable. And the second is that the culture in St. Augustine, Florida at this time tended to have old-fashioned values, and the gruesome nature of this murder led to some rather unorthodox investigation techniques. Athalia had been struck at least nine times with a machete. Her corpse was a morbid sight. Perhaps it was the shock or just general detachment, but no police officer on the scene thought to cover Athalia's corpse before the press arrived. When reporters started taking pictures of her mutilated body and officers realized that they were losing control of the crime scene, they took drastic measures. Gosh, look at that. You ever seen something like that? Once or twice. Doesn't mean I'm used to it. O'Loughlin, get in here. Help us search. And watch out for that blood. Coming, Sheriff. And someone get a hose in here. We don't need any more pictures getting out. At least two of the blows that killed Athalia struck arteries. Blood was everywhere, and the police thought it might help their investigation to clean up a bit. To that end, they started hosing down the blood that was left on the porch. But not before several officers had tracked it into the house. There are suspicions, naturally, that the decision to clean up the blood in the crime scene was part of an effort to protect Athalia's husband, James Lindsley, the former mayor of St. Augustine. Last episode, we mentioned the 1971 car crash that killed Lillian Lindsley, James's first wife. James was driving. Though he was known as a heavy drinker, he was not breathalyzed after the crash. People generally wrote this off as the police not wanting to implicate the then mayor of the town in such a scandal. In 1974, even though James was by then a former mayor, he continued to maintain a strong reputation. Given that most murders of married women are committed by the husband, the police may have sought to partially corrupt the crime scene as a way to help keep James out of the public spotlight. Regardless, James Lindsley was naturally the first person of interest in the case. He was brash, a heavy drinker, and suspiciously showed up to the crime scene with his lawyer in tow, as though prepared to need a defense. Rumors had also swirled that the Lindsleys were estranged, due to the fact that they lived in separate homes. However, this was a personal choice made by the husband and wife, and by all accounts, they were as happy as any other couple. In reality, the fact that James and Athalia lived apart was what exonerated him so quickly. In the immediate aftermath of the murder, police interviewed Ronald Best, James' neighbor. So you say that you did see Mr. Lindsley earlier this evening? I did. I did indeed. He didn't say anything, but... Must have been right around 6.05. I checked the garden at 6, and I had just gotten started. Best claimed James was at his house at 6.05 p.m. Traveling by car, James and Athalia lived seven minutes apart. Thanks to Locke McCormick's testimony, police knew that Athalia had been murdered at or shortly before 6 p.m. While there is a thin possibility that James hacked his wife to death, sped his car down a main and very public street, arrived at his house and changed out of his blood-soaked clothes, all in the span of five minutes, it seems highly unlikely. Ronald Best's witness testimony was seen as a solid alibi. So they started to look for other persons of interest. And they didn't have to look far. Just next door was the home of Alan Griffin Stanford, Athalia's neighbor, with whom she had been engaged with in a long-standing feud for the past few months. Stanford was nowhere to be found when the police arrived. 
but his wife Patty and daughter Patricia had heard Athalia's screams and were among the first people to be interviewed for witness statements. We'd finished supper, and I heard an awful scream, and I told Patricia to take the baby upstairs. Did you see anyone in the area at all? No, but I wouldn't have been paying attention. Were you home most of the day? I was home all day until I took Patricia to her tennis game. That was at, must have been around 4 p.m. When did you get back? Around 5.30. What happened? What's going on? Patty, who are you talking to? It's, Alan, it's just so awful. Do you live nearby, sir? I'm Alan Stanford. That's my house right next door. What happened? It's Mrs. Athalia, sir. She's dead. Was she shot or was she cut? When, at 7 p.m., Stanford arrived home and heard the shocking news of the brutal murder of his neighbor, he didn't act particularly surprised. After hearing Stanford's strange, cold reaction to the news, Sheriff Dudley Garrett came to recall a certain phone conversation he had had with Stanford some months before. This is Sheriff Garrett. I want to run a background check on Athalia Lindsley. Alan, that you? I want to see if she's got any skeletons in her closet. Can you help me out? Well, let me see. I've only got two murders, an arson, and a robbery on my desk today. Sure, Alan. I can definitely help you dig up dirt on your neighbor. If you're not gonna... I'll check the county file when I have the time. See if there's anything about Athalia in there. Goodbye, Alan. The memory of the phone call and Alan's ominous reaction to news of the murder encouraged Garrett and the St. Augustine Police Department to begin to look into Stanford's whereabouts on the night of the murder. Unfortunately, this proved harder than expected due to murky, conflicting accounts from Stanford, his wife Patty, and his daughter Patricia. You dropped off your daughter and her friend. Uh, what was her name? That girl? Oh, I don't remember. She knows your daughter. You picked her up and dropped her off at her home. You don't know her name? It's... Look, I have an 18-year-old and a baby, and it's just... Everything is moving all the time. It's hard to keep track. Hunter. The girl's name is Hunter Bateman. Right. That's what I said. I knew that. You picked them up from the tennis courts, dropped off Hunter, then came home. What time did you get home from the tennis courts? It was either 5 or 5.15 or 5.30. Yesterday you said 5.30. Do you remember exactly? 5.15. It must have been 5.15 because we were just eating supper when we heard, you know, the screams. I thought you had finished supper when you heard the screams. I don't... Look, my house is so chaotic. I know that I was cooking at 5.30. What time did your husband come home? He was home when I got there. Did your husband have anything to drink last night? I think he did. Where does he fix his drinks? At the sink, by the window. When you heard the screams, had you finished supper or were you eating? I must have finished because I was doing dishes. When you heard the screams? Yes, see... I remember your house from that night. Your kitchen window has a direct line of sight to Athalia's front porch. If you were doing dishes when you heard the screams, maybe you would have seen the attack. Well, now, I know that I didn't, so I must not have been at the sink. Detective Dominic Nicklow oversaw several interviews with Patty Stanford. Though her story and timetable changed each time, each statement was clearly intended to express two, quote, truths. Patty did not see the murder happen, and that Alan had left the house several minutes before the murder occurred. Patricia Stanford, Alan and Patty's daughter, provided a slightly more reliable statement. She was more sure than her mother that they had gotten home at 5.30. 
When asked if she heard her father's car when he left, she responded that she hadn't. Hunter Bateman, Patricia's friend who had been with Patty and Patricia on that day, provided yet another account of the events. Hunter stated to the police that Patricia hadn't dropped her off until at least 5.30, meaning that Patricia and Patty wouldn't have arrived home until 5.40 at the soonest. This would mean that Stanford wouldn't have left until closer to 6 p.m., right around the time of the murder. The picture of where Stanford was and what he was doing was suspicious enough that police felt it was prudent to dig deeper. What they found might have at the time seemed like an unspectacular family man with more manners than skill. But when they peeled back the layers of Alan Stanford's life, they began to realize that Stanford had a comfortable livelihood, one that he perhaps did not deserve. And in January of 1974, this livelihood was being intimately threatened by one Athalia Poncel Lindsley. We'll find out just how threatening she was after the break. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal... What do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Well, I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. How Alan Stanford Jr. came to live in St. Augustine, next to Athalia Poncel Lindsley, the woman he would one day be suspected of killing in January of 1974, is a straightforward story. When he was young, Alan Jr. planned to borrow more from his father than just his name. It was Alan's ambition from a young age to be a civil engineer, just like Alan Sr. Stanford joined the Army Reserves after grade school and on the GI Bill studied marine engineering and business administration. He married in 1948, and by 1956, he and his wife Patty had two children. Throughout the 1950s, Stanford worked a number of sales and administrative jobs, including stints as a textiles sales rep and an account manager for Fairchild Hiller. In 1968, Stanford was working as an aircraft parts salesman. He was transferred to St. Augustine, Florida, where he soon bought a house and moved his family. It was 1971 when Stanford heard of a job opening for St. Augustine County Manager. He applied and somehow convinced whoever was in charge of hiring to take him on, even though he lacked one massive qualification. The job of a county manager involves approving and overseeing municipal construction projects, so a civil engineering certification is absolutely necessary. The only problem was Alan Griffin Stanford was not a certified civil engineer. Now, I know what it looks like on paper, but I promise you, and you can confirm this by looking at my experience in other fields, I'm more than qualified to take on this position. Heck, I'm probably more qualified than anyone else you got in mind. Yeah, your resume's certainly impressive. I think we can take a chance on you. 
But you gotta promise me you'll get that certification before the start of the next quarter. Shouldn't be a problem. I'll get everything sorted out. Stanford never did get the certification. Whether that was just an oversight on his part, something that slipped his mind, or if he had a more specific reason for not getting certified, we'll never know. What we do know is that in January of 1972, Alan Stanford started his role on the county commission. It was a high-paying job, which he was not qualified for. And his ability to acquire the job highlighted the fact that Alan Stanford was a privileged man used to getting what he wanted. But there was one woman unafraid of challenging that privilege, and Stanford just so happened to live next door to her. As they began questioning the friends and family of Athalia Poncel Lindsley, the police heard about a number of confrontations between Athalia and her neighbor that ended in Stanford making absurd, ominous threats. On one such occasion in the spring of 1973, Athalia was hosting a party when she noticed that Stanford was lurking outside of her house. I hope you had a good time. Yes, we should do this again soon. Athalia, who's that man over there? Oh, that's my neighbor, Mr. Stanford. I invited him to join us for the party, but he and I haven't been getting along lately. Let me tell you. I think he's waving at you. Look, he wants you to go over there and talk to him. What's he want now? Couldn't even wait till my party was over to start. Evening, Alan. I hope the party wasn't too loud. Listen, you. You're a vicious, evil woman, and one day, I'm going to fix you. The partygoers overheard Alan's pointed threat, but didn't make anything of it at the time. Perhaps they thought he was merely disgruntled with the noise of their festivities. Athalia's sister, Geraldine, also told investigators about a time when Athalia expressed strange concerns. You know, no matter how many times I visit, I'm always in awe of how beautiful the sunsets are here. You're lucky, sis. Athalia? Hmm? Oh, sorry, Geraldine. What's on your mind? It's not like you to nod off in the middle of a conversation. I just got distracted. I saw... Oh, I see. That's the neighbor you've been telling me about. That man over there, Alan Stanford. Yes. He's gonna kill me. Athalia was no stranger to drawing anger from people who didn't agree with her no-nonsense, nonconformist personality. Was she just dismissing Alan's anger? Or did she truly fear for her life? In 1973, at a public commissions meeting, one of many that Athalia attended, she reportedly accused Stanford of making a threat. All right, all right, let's settle down here. I feel like settling down is the last thing I should be doing. And I'm telling you again, Commissioner, this woman is nothing but a liar. Mrs. Lindsley, as always, we appreciate you coming here today to express your concerns on behalf of the community. But your accusations against Mr. Stanford with regards to his salary and other business, this is not a court of law. We deal in matters concerning county issues and will not be drawn into personal squabbles. Personal squabbles? Mr. Wiles! It's no secret to anyone in this town that you and Mr. Stanford haven't had the best neighbor-to-neighbor relationship. All due respect, sir, my life has been threatened. You talk about personal things, he threatened my life. I'd like to state, Mr. Chairman, that's a lie. That's not true. 
it was a fairly common occurrence for Athalia to appear before the county commission and discuss her various concerns with how the town's resources were handled. But whenever she tried to draw attention to Alan Stanford, she'd be dismissed as just an angry woman with personal grudges. Detectives found that the squabbles between Athalia and Stanford got stranger and stranger. In one particularly strange act of retaliation, Stanford poured sugar in the gas tank of Athalia's car while she and her husband James were out of town. Up to this point, James had let Athalia take the lead in dealing with her various disputes with Alan. But reportedly, after the incident with the car, James went to Stanford's house to settle things himself. Alan, you son of a- Get off my property, James. You're gonna pay for the damages to my car, and that's the end of it. You got the wrong guy. I don't know anything about your car. With your wife going on like she does, you could just as well suspect every single person in this town. Get down from that roof so we can settle this man to man. I've got shingle work to do, James. Get off my lawn before I call the police. Mayor or no, I'll take care of you if I have to. Stanford's rebuffs and retaliation seemed to come from a place of confidence. But as Athalia continued to put pressure on him personally and professionally, Stanford began to show a more paranoid side. Powell residence, Nancy Powell speaking. It's Alan Stanford. Alan? Didn't I just see you at church? How are you doing? I got questions, Nancy, about the Lindsley woman. Alan, you know Athalia's my friend. I don't want to get involved in whatever's going on between you two. Have you heard anything bad? I'm sorry? Do you know anything bad about her? Do you have any dirt? Alan, I'm not comfortable with this. How many times has she been married? I don't know, Alan. Why don't you ask her yourself? I need something on her. Something I can use to get her to shut up. Because if she doesn't stop what she's doing, I'm going to send her back to where she came from. What does that even mean? Back where she came from? You mean Jacksonville? No. I mean back where she came from. Well, that's... ominous. Nancy Powell, the woman Alan called, was a friend of Athalia's. Odd that Stanford would think that she would be willing to gossip with him. Maybe he assumed that his general likability applied to everyone in the town. But as detectives sorted out this strange rivalry, they found that Athalia had been exposing a weakness in Alan Stanford. His standard of living was very much tied to his ability to keep his job and its high-paying salary. And Athalia was threatening to do away with all of that. Athalia appeared before the county commission a number of times in the months leading up to her death. She would point out substandard city projects and lay the blame for their poor organization at Stanford's feet. Remember, Stanford was unqualified for his position as county commissioner as he did not have the proper civil engineering certification. Her complaints against Stanford were largely ignored, as he had made a point to stay friendly with his fellows on the commission. Athalia was persistent, though, and her efforts to oust Stanford from a position for which she knew he did not deserve culminated in a very public shouting match at a county commission meeting on January 22, 1974, the day before her murder. Athalia complained to the commission about a new road that had not been adequately paved. As usual, she pointed to Stanford's inadequacies as the culprit and went so far as to demand his immediate termination. The subsequent shouting match made a lot of noise across the town, but as usual, the commission sided with Stanford. But Athalia had an ace in the hole. 
She had previously written letters to Florida's Department of Professional and Occupational Regulations, demanding they investigate Stanford's lack of proper certification. We feel it our duty to inform of the apparent malpractice of a man who appears to be passing himself off as a certified engineer. He signs county legal documents as the county engineer, when as far as we can ascertain, he has no engineering degree in any field. This seeming chicanery casts a shadow on the professional engineering society of the state of Florida, comparable to a quack practicing medicine. By bringing this to your attention, we hope it can be investigated and rectified. After several of these types of letters, the State Department dispatched two men to investigate. They came by Stanford's office on the afternoon of January 23rd, the day of Athalia's death. Who are you? Mr. Stanford, my name is Thomas Murphy. This is Elmer Emmerich. We're investigators with the Florida State Board. Is something the matter? We're looking into a complaint we received against you. Let me guess, mouthy woman, the kind that doesn't know how to mind her own business? I wouldn't know. We just received a letter. We'd like to talk to you about your qualifications for the job you currently hold. Look, all that jabber about my certification, it's just nonsense. Mr. Stanford, we already know you don't have the certification that is required for someone in your position. We're not here for that. We're here to determine whether the lack of certification indicates you violated any laws in carrying out your job duties. Violated? You mean like a criminal case? <laughs> not that dramatic. But rest assured, there will be consequences if we find evidence of any wrongdoing. The investigators didn't show Stanford the letters, but they did confirm that there were letters and that Athalia had written them. They also informed Alan that they planned on interviewing Athalia about her take on the matter the very next day. If Alan Stanford was going to act, he would have to do it sooner rather than later. So what did Stanford do? Well, this brings us back to Patty Stanford's confusing police statements and the even more confusing timeline surrounding the events of Athalia's murder. On January 23, 1974, Alan Stanford presumably left work at around the same time Inspectors Murphy and Emmerich left his office. They planned to drive by Athalia's house to confirm their appointment for the next day. By their account, they reached her house around 5.30 in the afternoon. No one was there. Around the same time, Athalia said goodbye to James at the grocery store before she headed home. This was the last time James Lindsley saw his wife alive. Stanford's movements during the period between 5.15 and 7 p.m. on the night of January 23rd are murky at best. This is because the statements drawn from Patty Stanford, Patricia Stanford, and Patricia's friend, Hunter Bateman, are beyond contradictory. But here's a general account of the timeline that the police put together. Stanford got home at 5.30 p.m. or later. We know this because he claims he saw Athalia, who didn't get home until closer to 6 p.m. He arrived home either shortly before or shortly after Patty and Patricia. Patty had taken Hunter and Patricia to the tennis courts, shopped while they played, picked the girls up, dropped off Hunter at her house, and then returned home. Honey, we're home. It's steaks for dinner. Alan, are you drinking? You know you shouldn't on an empty stomach. Enough of that. I've had a hell of a day. And this is where the story gets particularly confusing. According to his wife, Patty, Alan had at least one drink while Patty cooked. At around the time they all sat down for dinner, 
Alan suddenly announced that he had forgotten something at the office and that he had to return to work. Can it wait, Alan? We just sat down. No! I won't be gone a minute. Eat without me. A few minutes after Alan left, Patty heard Athalia's screams as she was being hacked to death. However, Alan's daughter Patricia Stanford told a different story than her mother. Alan, I wish you wouldn't stand at the window and mope like that while we're enjoying dinner. Come sit down. There she is. Alan? I left something at the office. I need to go. Patricia claimed that her father never sat with them at the dinner table and merely stood by the window, drinking and reading that day's paper. It just so happens that the front page of the St. Augustine record was dedicated to an article about the gross incompetence of the county commissioners and the county managers in regards to municipal projects. This included the drama over the same road that Athalia had accused Allen of mismanaging at the board meeting the day before. On top of that, the window Stanford was standing at had a direct view of Athalia's front lawn. So if Stanford was standing there at the time that Patricia claimed he was, he may well have seen Athalia when she arrived home. This leaves us with a striking image. Alan Stanford, drunk, angry, reading a news story about his own incompetence, possessed by the fear that the state officials are going to fire him, and then, through the window, he spots Athalia Poncel Lindsley, the woman at the root of all of his troubles. We'll continue covering the investigation into Stanford after the break. Now back to the story. The lack of clarity in Alan Stanford's whereabouts on the evening of January 23rd, 1974, generated a lot of suspicion in the eyes of St. Augustine police. The ample time and motive he had to commit the murder of Athalia Poncel Lindsley started to paint a pretty damning picture. One thing was certain, within a few days of the murder, the police had more than enough reason to establish Stanford as their prime suspect. The next step was to find the evidence. Sheriff Dudley Garrett, acting on the conflicting witness statements and the documented history of Allen's aggression towards Athalia, appeared before a judge on January 25th, just two days after the murder, to request a search warrant for the Stanford's home. The search warrant did not lead the police to what they were hoping to find, namely a murder weapon or clothes with Athalia's blood on them. But at Garrett's direction, they kept up the pressure and soon got a break from one of Allen's co-workers. Yeah, I lent him a machete. About the size of the one you say was used to kill that poor woman. And did he return it? Don't think so. It's county property. I just had it checked out from the main office, and I lent it to Alan. Armed with this new information, St. Augustine police had Stanford's car impounded. They found blood on the seat and on the steering wheel, but no weapon. The blood's probably mine. I nick myself more times than I'd like to admit when I work in the garage. And I keep the windows on the car down, so... And the machete? What, that thing? I returned that to David days ago. Left it right in the back of his truck. As the search for the murder weapon widened, forensics tracked a blood trail from Athalia's porch across her yard and right to the wall that divided her property from the Stanford's. When police searched Stanford's home, they found blood on two concrete blocks in the garage. So, they had a blood trail leading towards Stanford's home, and blood in his car, and blood in his house. And that wasn't enough, huh? Remember, this is 1974, over 10 years before the first documented case in which DNA was used to solve a crime. 
fingerprints were still the best chance investigators had to make an arrest, and for that, they needed a murder weapon. Garrett took a gambit and on February 16, 1974, posted a reward in the paper, $500 for any information leading to the discovery of the machete used to murder Athalia Lindsley. The very next day, on February 17th, he received some good news. Hello? Eddie, it's Dewey Lee. I've been trying to get a hold of you. I got something I think you ought to see. You have? Yeah. How about coming on and meeting me at the end of Riberia Street? As luck would have it, St. Augustine had its very own dumpster diver, Henry Deward Lee, known around town as Dewey Lee. He was a veteran and a known scavenger. When he got word to be on the lookout for a machete, he knew just where to go. Dewey Lee had been scavenging junk in St. Augustine long enough to know the exact spot that a nearby river tended to let off any debris. Dewey led his friend, Lieutenant Eddie Lightsey, and his son to a small creek near a marsh. There, they found a wrapped-up towel, which included not just the blood-stained machete, but also a wristwatch, a pair of pants, a shirt, a belt, and a tie, all stained with blood. On the next day, February 18th, more police officers searched the area around the creek and found a pair of blood-stained wingtip shoes. Four days later, on February 22nd, 1974, a warrant was issued for the arrest of Alan Griffin Stanford Jr. on the charge of first-degree murder. Stanford was arrested on a Friday and stayed in jail through the weekend. He appeared in court first thing on Monday, the 25th. He pleaded not guilty and posted bail. Less than a week later, he was indicted by a grand jury on March 1st, 1974. By all accounts, the police officers involved felt that they had an airtight case. They had the threats. The murder weapon. The bloody clothes. The contradictory alibis. And they had Locke McCormick's recanted statement, which, even though it had been invalidated, still made an impression among those who had heard him say it. Mr. Stanford's hitting Mrs. Lindsley! Going into the trial, a conviction seemed all but a sure thing. But in St. Augustine, there were already signs that fate was about to smile on Alan Stanford. For one, Alan's friends, neighbors, and fellow St. Augustinians had no problem expressing the belief that Alan either was completely innocent or worse, if he had committed murder, he was to be commended for ridding the town of that woman. Trinity Episcopal, one of the most prominent churches in the community, actually ran a fundraiser for the Stanfords. They reasoned that Allen was not working during his trial prep and had apparently amassed no savings for his family to live on. This was despite the fact that the family lived in a house that cost over $100,000, and Patty's father, Perry Mullen, was quite wealthy himself. Wealthy enough to hire an all-star lawyer named Walter Arnold Jr., Walter Arnold had lived a storied career as a high-profile defense attorney for decades. However, at age 66, he had reached a point where he only accepted cases that interested him. Hmm. The case of defending Alan Stanford, in spite of all the evidence, seemed like the kind of challenge that Arnold couldn't resist. Arnold's first step was to stop the trial from changing locations. The growing contributions from hundreds of people in St. Augustine County concerned the prosecution. They feared it wouldn't be possible to find a juror who hadn't donated to Stanford's defense. 
And so, on April 16th, State Attorney Richard Walker filed a motion to have the case moved to a different county. He wrote, The publicity of the case, the position of the defendant in county government, the sympathy engendered by prayers being said in public worship, public meetings, the defendant's exculpatory statements in the press and television, has engendered widespread hostility toward the state of Florida and the deceased, with the result that it has become impractical and psychologically impossible to select an impartial jury in this county. Translation, people in the county liked Stanford, didn't like Athalia, and thus wouldn't be able to be impartial as a juror. A number of law enforcement officers and reporters expressed support for Walker's motion, but Walter Arnold had other ideas. A change of venue would be prohibitively expensive and an organizational challenge, but prosecution does raise a compelling case. Your Honor, the prosecution can't hope to assume that every single person out of the hundreds who live in this county has already formed a prejudiced opinion on this case. It is the position of the defense that the court should take the prosecution's motion under advisement until potential jurors can be considered, as would be the case in any normal court of law. Arnold convinced Judge Eastmore to hold a jury selection in the county before deciding if it would be impossible to stack an impartial jury. Of course, in such a high-profile case, no potential juror would openly admit in court to having a biased opinion. Keeping the trial local was likely Arnold's single biggest victory in the case. As the months passed and the trial was met with delay after delay, each one a benefit to Stanford, who had more time to prepare his defense, tragedy struck St. Augustine yet again. Francis Bemis, a newspaper writer, radio producer, and a friend of Athalia's, went out to walk her dog on the night of November 3rd, 1974. She didn't come home, and the next morning, she was discovered by a neighbor, body horribly crushed and half-burned. It didn't take long for conspiracy and gossip to overtake fact. Francis was, at least in private circles, a vocal advocate for justice for Athelia's murder. She firmly believed that Alan Stanford had committed the crime and had allegedly confided to a friend that she was in the process of trying to bring new information to light. To this day, unsolved murder aficionados question whether the murder of Francis Bemis was somehow tied to the murder of Athalia Lindsley. After all, these were both headstrong older women murdered on the very streets where they lived in violent, seemingly unprovoked attacks. And they occurred only 10 months apart. The rumors swirled, as they often do in a small town racked by scandal. There was a conspiracy that Stanford somehow managed to kill Bemis in order to prevent her from uncovering the truth. But there is no proof to back up this claim other than the number of coincidences between the cases. If anything, it caused tensions in St. Augustine to be at an all-time high in the months leading up to the trial. The trial began on January 20th, 1975, 11 months after Allen's arrest and nearly a year after Athalia's murder. Jury selection took two and a half days. The rest of the week introduced the grisly pictures of the body and saw Locke McCormick take the stand as the only eyewitness to the murder. Now, I'm going to read something to you. Mr. Stanford is hitting Mrs. Poncel. That was a statement that your mother claimed you said after you went outside on that night. Do you remember saying that? Yes, but I know now I'm not sure what I saw. It was dark. I was scared. Who I saw, 
I don't think it was Mr. Stanford. I think it was nobody I'd ever seen before. Losing Locke's statement was a blow to the prosecution, but not a fatal one. Everyone in the courtroom knew what Locke had said when he witnessed the murder, even if he had later recanted it. But it was all the opening Walter Arnold needed to slowly pick apart the prosecution and cast doubt in the minds of the jury. Arnold left no stone unturned. Every single victory that law enforcement had made in the case against Stanford, he seemed to have a perfect counter-argument for. So I followed it. You followed the blood trail from the victim's home? Yes, sir. And where did it lead you, officer? To the wall. The fence that divided Mrs. Lindsley's yard from Mr. Stanford's. Can you tell me what this is, officer? Pictures from that day? The crime scene? There's me in the kitchen. And what is that, officer? Those black spots? Huh. Must be more blood tracks. I thought the police report said that there was no blood found inside the house. Well, yeah, but it was all over the porch, so... When we went inside, we must have tracked some in with us. So how can you say, without reasonable doubt, that the tracks leading to my client's property weren't made by one of your fellow officers? I guess... I can't say for sure. Whether the police's careless handling of the crime scene had just been a professional oversight or a deliberate attempt to help James Lindsley, the actions taken on that day had come back to haunt the prosecution. Much of the case went on in this fashion. Arnold spoke at length to the possibility that the machete had been planted. Allen had returned it, as he said. Dewey Lee, who the whole town knew was generally down on his luck, tracked down the machete, stole it, and then set it up to be found so that he could collect his reward. Arnold put James Lindsley on the stand and hammered him about his relationship with Athalia, their marital problems, the circumstances of Lillian Lindsley's death, anything to make the jury suspect someone other than Stanford. Arnold had successfully wrenched open a pocket of reasonable doubt in a local biased jury. But he didn't let up. His closing statements really drove the nail in the coffin. Above all, the prosecution wants you to believe that my client, unprompted, without warning, walked to his neighbor's yard, hacked her to death with a machete, came back to his home covered in blood, was confronted by his wife and daughter, and that the whole family has been engaged in an elaborate cover-up. And to that, I ask you, if it's true, if Mr. Stanford had indeed come home covered in blood with a bloody blade, why would Mrs. Stanford and his daughters still be staying with him? We know how the psychological trauma of living with an abuser or with an unstable partner can lead a victim to stay with that person. There are any number of reasons Patty Stanford chose to stay with her husband even if she did see him commit the murder. But by appealing to the jury's emotional sentiments, Arnold's argument was incredibly convincing. No one could provide a reason why Patty would stay with Alan if he was guilty. On Monday, February 3rd, 1975, the jury was sent off to deliberate the fate of Alan Stanford Jr. They returned less than three hours later. Has the jury reached a verdict? It has, Your Honor. Please read the verdict for the court. On the charge of first-degree murder of Athalia Poncel Lindsley, on the night of January 23, 1974, we find the defendant not 
guilty. Stanford's father-in-law got his money's worth, not that Stanford ever repaid him. Neither did Stanford make any effort to pay back the many, many parishioners of Trinity Episcopal, who donated to help his family while he was on trial for murder. Stanford's attitude toward money seemed to come from a place of entitlement and not gratitude. That behavior didn't end with this trial. In 1987, Patty Stanford died. She had drafted a will, separate from Allen's, which left significant financial assets to her daughters. Because the youngest Stanford daughter, Annette, was underage at the time, Allen was made partial executor of Patty's will and estate. That is, until he had Patty's lawyer removed from the will and appointed himself as sole executor. In less than a year, he had burned through most of the money that had been intended for Annette's college education. Eighteen years after she sat in court and watched her father be tried for murder, Patricia Stanford took Allen to court herself to sue for control of the trust. She won the case. Allen Stanford died in 2006 in Charleston, South Carolina. His obituary did not mention his relation to the Athalia Lindsley case. It didn't even mention that he ever lived in Florida. He was buried next to Patty. The words loving husband, father, friend were engraved on his tombstone. Alan Stanford was the only person to ever be charged with a crime in relation to the murder of Athalia Poncel Lindsley. The case technically remains cold. But based on what we looked at today, it seems anything but. I mean, if Alan was all talk and no action, and if he really had returned that machete, and if the clothes weren't his, and his blood in his car came from just a normal cut, and if he had left his house on the night of the murder well before Athalia died, and if, and if, and if. And Athalia told her sister, Geraldine, that Alan Stanford was going to murder her. I think she was right in that matter, and that Alan Stanford was the man to hack Athalia to death. I agree. It's hard to imagine in our modern age of DNA evidence that a case so overwhelmingly in favor of the prosecution would turn around so shockingly. Then again, as always, context is key here. The saga of Athalia's murder began when Alan Stanford managed to charm his way into a job that he was not qualified for. He was likable, well-spoken, a good Southern gentleman. That good Southern gentleman would win over a jury of his peers and convince them that, in spite of all the evidence, he had nothing to do with Athalia's murder. What went unsaid over the entire affair was the cruel sense among St. Augustine residents that Athalia had brought about her own demise, simply by daring to stand up and be heard. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review online. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. 
Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Steve Pinto, and Harris Markson. Hey.